2: This is
3: Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Will Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The dog days of summer meet a busy news week, and the markets take it all in stride. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Take us through the week in the markets. Welcome now Nancy Davis. She's Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner at Quadratic Capital Management. And Sarah Malik, Chief Investment Officer for Equities at Nuveen. So Sarah, let me start with you on the equity side. Uh, Despite all the news that came out, and there was some up and down, the equity market just kept going up, although not quite as fast as it had.
4: Equity markets and bond markets definitely became disconnected this week. This is around the great debate around economic data and also inflation. We saw cooler CPI data hotter ppi data our view is that the cooler cpi data wins out because the factors driving that down are more permanent well the ppi data is hotter but that's around the one-time reopening Uh, other data points we watched this week were the infrastructure package 550 billion in new spending that's good for industrials and then of course consumer sentiment coming in at the lowest level in a decade if you look at consumer sentiment it's not always tied to consumer spending we saw low numbers in the fourth quarter of 2020, while equity markets still produced positive returns. We're watching economic data like the Conference Board data, which remains over one standard deviation above its mean.
3: Nancy, let's turn to you, because you've made something of a name for yourself in investing in and around inflation, really knowing how to take this into account as an investor. What do you make of those CPI and PPI numbers, which seem to go a bit in different directions this week?
2: Well, I think if you look at the long-term trend, if we start at, say, the first quarter of um of 2021, you know, the 10-year yield was 175. And then we've had four CPI prints well above the 2% target from the Fed. We had 4.2 first, then five, then two 5.4 prints. And you would kind of scratch your head. And if you had a crystal ball at the start of Q2 and you knew the CPI prints were going to come in that much higher than 2%, what would most rational people do? You would sell bonds because you would think yields would be going higher, but it's opposite day in the markets. And yields have done nothing but go lower um, with all these higher CPI prints. So I think there's definitely something screwy going on uh, in the markets where nobody believes inflation is actually going to be here because why would you be walking up your capital? To your point, David, that the 10 years under 1.3% right now it doesn't make any sense if you actually believe that uh, inflation is coming.
3: But, Sarah, you're an equities person, not a bond person. But how much of the support of the equities markets that we're seeing is exactly because of what Nancy was talking about? Because yields actually have been very tame. People were talking about 2, 2.0 I'm talking about on the 10-year.
4: I mean, that's definitely very, makes equities look more attractive. From an equity portfolio point of view, uh, we're definitely saying you need to become more selective here Uh, First of all, you need to look for those companies that have the pricing power to overcome these inflationary costs. We're also seeing profit margins at about decade highs for companies. So these companies also need to be able to raise prices in order to drive their margins higher. Areas that we think are attractive are actually small caps. They're now trading at the largest discount to, to large caps that we've seen since September 2020. They're back at valuation levels of January. They tend to do well in Periods of rising inflation and interest rates. And we like industrials because as that infrastructure package kicks in, industrials will have that cyclical tailwind behind them to help them grow their businesses and increase their profit margins
3: well and it's not just the infrastructure package we now have the democrats in the senate at least saying we want would like another 3.5 percent incremental spending in that sort of second wave the build back better plan as president biden calls it so so sarah if in fact that comes to pass and forget the 3.5 suppose it's just two or 2.5 what does that mean potentially for investors
4: i mean for investors i think it means we have more confidence in economic growth going forward if you look at 2022 third year past the recession market returns actually tend to be pretty strong we see high single digit earnings growth next year that's not recessionary levels it's not where you where you would be for a bear market we think that drives markets higher rather than valuations and that's supported by economic growth now we do have two headwinds next year one is how are we going to pay for that infrastructure and all that spending probably higher taxes. That's going to negatively impact that earnings growth number. And also, we need to worry about taper timing. The Fed's been taking baby steps towards taper timing. We think they're watching August payroll data. If that looks as high as July data, um, we think the Fed could announce tapering in September and start tapering in early 2022. But, as long as the yield curve doesn't flatten, we think that markets can remain with positive returns, even through tapering and higher interest rates.
3: So, so Nancy, I, I, I don't want to misquote you, but I think you said the markets were a little bit screwy, I think was the word you drew. Given what the CPI numbers have been being and what the year-over-year inflation is, despite the fact people don't think it's going to come, how much of that do you think maybe because of the Delta variant? that people are really subdued. And we had really uh, stunning numbers at the end of the week on the consumer confidence out of the University of Michigan at the lowest, I think, in 11 years. How much of that is really constraining some of what we otherwise might have with consumer spending?
2: Well, I think to Sarah's point, um, the yield curve is the most important measure to be watching. It's very forward-looking. And since the Fed's June FOMC meeting, we've had the largest flattening in the forward yield curve since a financial crisis. And that should be ringing, you know, ringing the alert for equity and credit investors because corporates are priced to perfection, right? Everybody's expecting growth. Everybody's expecting earnings per share. But what if we actually have higher labor costs or shortages of goods and services or shipping delays? All those things, um, the yield curve is expecting uh, has had a massive flattening, and um, that's also because the market has priced in uh, the Fed hiking rates.
3: Okay, thank you so much to both of you. That's Sarah Malik of Nuveen, and Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital Management. Great to have you with us on Wall Street Week. Coming up, the enigma that is the labor market. Is it possible that we are seeing a shift in power back toward the labor side of the ledger? We ask Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with
3: David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The pandemic disrupted employment around the world, and as the economy recovers, we can't assume that we'll go back to working the way we did before. We've added millions of jobs since the low point, but the unemployment rate in the U.S. is still above 5%. And taken as a proportion of the population, employment is actually close to a four-decade low. Here's Bloomberg opinion columnist Bill Dudley.
5: On one hand, the labor supply seems tight. On the other
3: hand, when you judge judge by the number of jobs we're short from where we were in February 2020 or the unemployment rate still seems like there's quite a bit of slack uh, in the U.S. labor market. It's a trend that's affecting companies from services to Wall Street. A range of firms are raising salaries and paying bonuses, while others are offering perks like a free Peloton bike or an all-expenses-paid vacation.
6: We're definitely trying to do the best job to attract the widest array of talent possible. Compensation is important, and we've always, I think, been a leader in that area.
3: That's Blackstone's John Gray. Inflation and the labor market go hand in hand. Higher prices lead workers to ask for raises. And as we get back toward full employment, employers may have no choice but to pay them. Here's Larry Summers.
5: I think we're not far. Uh, from uh, full employment. We're within nine months or a year, certainly maybe less than that, of getting uh, to full employment.
3: And now the pandemic has added a new dimension to the traditional back and forth over pay and hours. Now there's the option of working from home as well. Bloomberg's John Authors says it wouldn't be the first time that a pandemic strengthened the hand of labor at the expense of capital.
5: One of
2: the reasonable lessons from history about pandemics, not that we've had too many pandemics that are exactly like this one, was that it does tend to strengthen the hands of labor compared to capital.
3: That's Bloomberg's John Authors. A University of Chicago study suggests that if employers try to make employees work from home five days a week, more than a third of their workforce may just quit. Here's Barclays Jess Staley.
5: You know, that physical presence, I think, is important for people. But also, the pandemic has taught us that we can be quite flexible.
3: Steve Ratner has spent his professional career looking at the balance between labor and capital, first as a successful banker on Wall Street, then as leading the efforts to renegotiate and restructure the auto industry under President Obama, and now as chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors, which invests the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael Bloomberg, the founder and principal shareholder of our parent company. Steve, thank you so much for being back on Wall Street Week. So let me ask you how we can have what we have right now in the labor industry. We have more than 4 million new jobs we've created in the last six months. Uh, we have, at the same time, a record number of job openings, and yet we have the lowest percentage of people actually employed in the, of the overall population in something like 40 years.
7: David, as you said, I have been watching this for 40 years, actually, as it happens myself. And we've never seen, I've never seen anything quite like it. I think this will be an uh, enormous amount of grist for the mill of economists to study in the years going forward. But essentially, yes, there's strong demand for labor. The country, at least so far, has been reopening, uh, in large part thanks to the federal government and all the stimulus. And yet a large number of Americans are reluctant to go back to work uh, for a variety of reasons. There's a lot of polling data on this. Some of it is our health concerns. Some of it is the fact that they've decided simply to leave the labor force and retire Some of it is the expanded unemployment benefits that actually pay some people more for not working than they were getting working. Uh, And a lot of it though is the fact that people's balance sheets, the household balance sheets are in extraordinarily good shape. You had an enormous amount of financial support from the federal government last year, total income earned by Americans, including federal transfer payments was actually a trillion dollars above what would normally have occurred last year and households spent about a trillion dollars less than they would normally spend last year. And so people don't have to go back to work because in many cases, and obviously I'm giving you broad generalizations, there are plenty of exceptions in both directions, but on an aggregate basis, uh, households are in extraordinarily good shape and many people don't have to go back to work and they're choosing not to.
3: Before this pandemic, I think some people might have said it's sort of a buyer's market. If we make the employer the buyer, that basically they can largely dictate the term. The bargaining position was really stronger for the employer. Is it possible that's shifted because of the pandemic?
7: Well, as, as I think it's shifted for the moment. I'm not sure it's shifted forever. It shifted for the moment for the reasons that I just described, that people, I think, in general, again, broad generalizations, people have the wherewithal to not go back to work. And so they are able, to a greater degree than they have in the past, as you suggest, dictate the terms under which they're going to go back to work. That should be a somewhat transitory effect. People can't uh, can, can't spend their savings forever at some point, most Americans need to go back to work and they will have to go back to work. But in the short run, what's going on, as you well know, and, and everybody knows, is that employers are raising pay, especially for people at the bottom, which is in many ways welcome news, to try to get them to come back to work. And, and as you also said, we have created a lot of new jobs. So slowly but surely they are coming back. And I would expect that trend to continue uh, over time.
3: It's early going, and and you know the dangers better than I of trying to make long-term projections off of single data points. At the same time, what do you think about the work from home phenomenon? Has it injected into the negotiation between labor and management a new element, where it used to be mainly about pay and hours, now we have where we're gonna be working from. We see a lot of people saying, you know what, I'm willing to go back, but only if I can work from home.
7: There's no question, and again, the polling data uh, brings a lot of this out, there's no question that the work from home And just a lot of things that relate to the pandemic, this extraordinary once in a century event, have changed the way people think about many of these things. And yes, there's no question uh, from the data that people are putting a greater value on the ability to work from home. And if they're, for, for many of them, if they're choosing between two jobs, one of which they're allowed to work from home, one of which they're not, they're more likely to choose the one in which they can work from home. But that's okay for employers too, for many of these people, you can work from home. But as I said, I do think in the fullness of time, The luxury that people have today, which I'm fine with and thrilled by, of being able to make these kinds of choices will diminish and people are going to be in a position where they're going to need to work and the jobs will be what the jobs are. Some of them can be done remotely, but many of them can't.
3: Steve, let's inject one other element into this that you know well, and that's organized labor. Certainly, you dealt with that when you restructured the auto industry. Uh, President Biden and his administration have made a priority of really advancing the cause for organized labor, which, if had happened, would reverse something that's been going on for some time. We're down to just over 10%, I think, of the private workforce that's organized right now under a a union. Is it possible for the Biden administration to turn that around?
7: I think they can make some difference. There's no question that the balance of power has had shifted over the last 20, 30, 40 years away from organized labor and to employers. Uh, Labor's share of uh, of the uh, profits in the economy had dropped to a relatively low level. Corporate profits have been incredibly strong. Uh, av- real wages had not done particularly well. And so, yes, it is it is both necessary and possible to begin to shift that around.
3: That's Steve Ratner from Willett Advisors. Coming up, Disney comes roaring back from COVID. But was it old-fashioned theme parks or was it the high-tech streaming? We talk with media executive and entrepreneur Michael Wolf of Activate. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg
3: Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Streaming giants like Netflix and Disney were among the few winners during the pandemic as lockdowns forced people to stay home. But Netflix earnings last month raised some questions, some initial questions, at least, about whether it was just a blip or a long-term trend. This week, Disney showed that it could keep the momentum going with better than expected subscriber growth for its Disney Plus streaming service. Michael Wolf has served as president and COO of MTV on the board of Yahoo, and is the co-founder and CEO of Activate, which advises tech and media companies. Michael, great to have you, the guru of media and tech. So first of all, let's start with Disney. And a basic question, at this point, as an investor, do you invest in Disney as a tech stock or a media stock? Because as you and I both know, the multiple is quite different.
6: Yeah, I mean, when, when you think about what investors are excited about, They're starting to look at, yes, 116 million in in total subscribers globally, which compares to Netflix at 200 million. So they're they're getting up there. If you look historically, Disney was trading in the same neighborhood as Netflix and and Amazon really in the 50s. Um, Going forward, um, it looks like they're trading at around 37 if um, and, and some of that just has questions about their ability to execute. With Bob Chapek in place, who Bob is incredibly exquisite at execution, um, there is a lot of upside in the stock. If they were to hit the same kind of multiples as Netflix and Amazon, you're talking between 30 to 50% increase in, in shareholder value for this company.
3: But, but, Michael, that raises my my mind the question of there's a lot to the Disney company beyond streaming. They have the theme parks, they have the cruise ships, yeah. they have a television network, after all, things like that. Is that ballast that sort of rights the ship if it might go off, or does it limit their upside? Because when you talk about Netflix, for example, they have pretty much all their eggs in one basket,
6: which is the tech basket. Right. D- Disney has a great deal more to play with and, and and a great deal more to underwrite their risk from streaming. The, the fact is that the parks are back. Delta, no doubt, Delta, we should see a stunning recovery from in, in, in the parks. A lot of other places in their business are doing well. But let's remember, compared to Netflix, they have licensing and merchandising. Yes, they have the theme parks. They can create other shows. They can create other networks. So they're fundamentally in a better position than Netflix. In a lot of ways, they're similar to Amazon, which is streaming is only part of the the, the picture and the, and, the, and the revenue mix.
3: So we've been talking about Netflix and Amazon and Disney. There are some other players out there, right? We have people like uh, Comcast, for example. We have Viacom, CBS, we have other players. Discovery, goodness knows, which is going through a big transaction. So what is the future of the business overall? What sort of consolidation want we to see? After all, I think Disney got there in part because Bob Iger really bellied up to the bar and bought, bought all those assets from Fox.
6: Well, he bought the assets from Fox, but he also bought Lucasfilm with Star Wars. He bought Marvel with um, the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so you see, what we're going to see is a continued and consolidation frenzy among the major media companies. If you look over time, what what's happened is every new wave of technology has driven um, changes in the composition of this industry, but it's actually increased revenue in the industry. So um, you, some of the things that are driving it is the growth of streaming, but it's also some others. One is the decline in, in, in cable, and cable's been the, the driver of revenue growth and profitability in all these companies, increased rise of connected TV. Within a couple of years, practically every American home will have a connected TV, whether it's a Roku or it's a Vizio. And um, but also it's this need to compete against Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple. And so we're going to see a lot more consolidation. Each of these companies, one way or the other, is going to have their own streaming services. I'm very upbeat about what does Warner Discovery will be able to do. I believe that between Discovery Plus and HBO Max, they will also get to 200 million um, subscribers wo- worldwide.
3: So, so, Michael, much or all the consolidation thus far, I would say, is within sort of the media space. What about even outside of that space? People say maybe Apple should buy CBS or buy Comcast or something. Do you expect it to go beyond just the four corners of the media world as they consolidate in the streaming world?
6: Um, yes. First of all, we see Amazon's $8 billion acquisition of MGM and once approved, it gives Apple access to a massive library historically of shows and also the ability to produce going forward. But I expect that every one of the technology companies will one way or the other find themselves into production, either television or films. And the result of that is they're not going to be able to build these services just on uh, on new production. They're going to build a lot of it on on libraries. Uh, And and if you also look at the amount of money that each of these companies are spending, Apple TV Plus is costing billions of dollars a year. Um, it it, it, It is really a part of the entire Apple ecosystem and support so many other things. So we will see mergers between these companies. Thank you so
3: much. It's great to have you with us. That's Michael Wolf of Activate. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
3: As we come to the end of the week, we turn to our special contributor, Larry Summers, to really bring out some of the most important things of the week. Larry, welcome. It's great to have you back. I'm going to actually start with last week, if I may, because when you were on Wall Street week, you said something at the Fed that a lot of people reacted to. They asked questions why that is. You said in their bond-buying program, they are perversely, I think was the word you used, actually shifting us toward shorter-term funding structure when we should be going to longer-term funding structure. Could you connect those two things up for us?
5: First idea The Fed is a uh, creature of the Treasury. The Treasury owns uh, the Fed, like the subsidiary of a company in a financial sense. What does the Fed do when it does quantitative easing? It puts out money, which carries a short-term floating uh, interest rate as bank reserves, and it buys up long-term bonds. And so, in effect, the government now has a floating rate short-term liability outstanding rather than a long-term fixed interest rate uh, liability since the Fed is owned by the Treasury. At a moment of super uncertainty, at a moment when many people think rates are remarkably low, a decision to fund more short seems uh, bizarre. And that's just one of the reasons why I think uh, as quickly as we prudently can without destabilizing things, we should be bringing QE to an end.
3: At the same time, this week, we found out that the government, at least part of the government, would like to borrow more money as we had that $3.5 trillion budget resolution passed the Senate, now headed over to the House. As Congress looks at this, because there's a lot of steps to take before it actually gets made into law, what should they be thinking about? What should Congress be concerned about in terms of macroeconomic policy?
5: Look, uh, the broad message of Bidenomics, of Build Back Better, that investment deficits are just as serious or more serious than financial deficits, and we have to address them, is right. But as we do it, we need to, one, pay for all the investments that we make with genuine revenue increases. Two, be very careful about locking in future liabilities that we don't pay for by, for example, funding very popular tax credits for just a few uh, years. And three, making sure that what we call investments really are investments that augment the supply capacity of the economy. If we do those three things, this can be a contributor to non-inflationary growth and rising standards of living for years to come. But if we don't, there's a real risk that it's going to fuel an inflationary psychology and actually bring forward Uh, the date of the next bout of financial instability or recession.
3: So you have talked to me about inflation a fair amount. Uh, The Biden administration reportedly took some steps maybe to keep down at least the price of gas at the pump this week. Ironically, when they're trying to cut back on greenhouse gas emissions, they ask OPEC Plus to increase, to increase its production. What did you make of that as a matter of policy?
5: Look, I don't really hear the melody quite right on some of this with Buy American, with raising uh, tariffs, with various regulatory policies, the, with so-called worker-based trade policies, the goal of the Biden administration sometimes seems like it's to raise the price to consumers of most things, to help workers and to help businesses, and then to reduce the price of gasoline. Since we've seen this week that energy consumption is the most toxic form of consumption that households engage in, I think it's highly problematic to be trying to bring its price down while trying to bring every other price up. I think there's no more important price to increase in the American economy than uh, the price of carbon-based fuels. And so this is a perverse, kind of uh, step uh, from my point of view. I'd much rather see us do it in other ways than by helping uh, OPEC. But in general, the right direction for gas prices is up, and the right direction for most other prices is down at a time of inflation and policy seems to me in important respects to be pushing in the opposite direction.
3: You mentioned vaccines, let's go there, because you're part of a very important group, the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. They came up with a statement this week, really calling on the U.S. to take a leadership position on vaccination. Tell us about that.
5: David, we're spending or proposing to spend three and a half trillion dollars on investing in the country's future. I cannot understand why we would not spend 1% of that, at least, on protecting the country's future with a forward defense investment in uh, vaccinating the world. It protects against evolution that could be very damaging to us as we get variants beyond the Delta virus. It would be a huge source of American prestige and influence. Let's face it, our vaccines work much better than uh the chinese uh vaccines we're constantly talking about shoring up our alliances in concrete ways there's no way more concrete for more countries uh than this and it showcases what has been a huge success of american uh private sector public sector uh collaboration so On the model of when we sent a man to the moon, on the model of the Marshall Plan, on the model of, and I wasn't usually a supporter of his, the Bush administration's uh, PEPFAR initiative that people in Africa are still so grateful for 15 years later because of what it meant for the worldwide fight against uh, AIDS this is an area where we need to be leading from the front.
3: So, Larry, I'm really curious, because you've really led at very high levels in the U.S. government, including as Treasury Secretary. You have seen the intersection between politics on the one side and policy on the other, and there's a theme through what you've said today, I think, For example, in the pressure for lower gasoline prices at the pump. That's a political matter, I suspect, fundamentally. At the same time, leading around the world on vaccines, that doesn't resonate necessarily so well at home. How do you try to broker that deal between politics on one hand, you can't ignore in Washington, and good policy? Look,
5: I I think there's no one with all his years as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as vice president, who's got more experience in striking those balances uh, than uh, Joe Biden. And I was always mindful when I served in uh, government, and if I was anything, and I was, I perhaps had some expertise, I certainly wasn't a uh, politician or someone who anyone had ever elected to office. So I think one needs to respect the fact that in a democracy, Policy should uh, follow the will of the people, and so I think it's right that these decisions are made uh, Politically and I'm always offended when people somehow suggest that authoritarian governments will do it better because they can follow the advice of technocrats But I think sometimes and this is something the Constitution very much uh, recognized you need to lead uh, the people rather than uh, follow uh, the people. And that's what we did uh, with uh, the Marshall Plan. And we're going to need some of that, I believe, with respect to what I think are the most important global security challenges, climate change and uh, pandemic uh, disease. And my reading of American history is that the American people respond uh, to leadership uh, when it comes.
3: That's so terribly helpful. Thank you, Larry Summers, our special contributor here at Wall Street Week, and of course, of Harvard University. Thank you. Finally, one more thought. Cryptocurrency meet K Street. The Gospel of Matthew warns that there's risk when you try to pour new wine into old bottles. And this week in Washington, we saw once again why. The new wine this time came in the form of cryptocurrency, that newfangled thing we aren't quite sure what it is. Is it a form of money? Is it a commodity? Is it an investment? Or is it just a way to speculate? Well, whatever it is, a lot of people are eager to get it and trade it, and yes, you better believe make money off of it. And if you make money, you have to pay taxes, right? And that's where the old part comes in. When the Senate needed to find a way to pay for some of that infrastructure bill, it seized on requiring brokers to report transactions in cryptocurrencies so the IRS can make sure people pay the taxes that they owe. But the cryptocurrency industry said they were going way too far. And so they did what industries have done since the middle of the 19th century. They lobbied. That time-honored tradition named for the lobby of the Willard Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, where all the real work got done way back in the Grant administration. And through their efforts, they got a bipartisan group of senators to come up with new language that the Biden administration could support. Problem solved, right? Well, not so fast. It turns out that the arcane rules of the Senate give any single senator the right to stop the proposed changes. And Republican Senator Richard Shelby did just that, and he did it repeatedly, leaving the tougher language in the bill that actually passed. But don't despair, these blockchain upstarts are a pretty resourceful bunch, and maybe you can teach new dogs old tricks. Heck, maybe all it takes is for them to figure out how to get all those political packs to take Bitcoin. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week.